ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, good afternoon. Selena Green bringing you this Friday edition of The Country Hour. Coming up, hear the latest on what's expected for farm incomes this coming year and the latest advice for livestock farmers amongst some challenging times. It does raise an interesting question, though, in terms of as we progress and if it was to get drier across parts of the country, have those early decisions already mean that we've seen those livestock come out or is there less likelihood of further decline in prices? That's to come very shortly. But firstly today, dry conditions, declining commodity prices and increasing interest rates are all pointing to a significant decline in broadacre farm incomes this financial year. A new ABARES report predicts that after a record couple of years, average farm cash income nationally will drop by 41% to $197,000 per farm in 23-24. Livestock farms will be affected by large, uh, with sheep farm incomes in particular forecast to be well below average. Dr Jared Greenville is the Executive Director of ABES and he joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and thanks for having me along. I wish we had some more positive news to report but overall it does seem from this report that there is a significant fall forecast for broadacre farming comes across the coming year. That's right. Um, as we're shifting into some drier conditions um, across much of the country, actually, but particularly in some areas in WA, New South Wales and Queensland, but at the same time, we're seeing prices fall across the board, across a number of our commodities. We're expecting farm cash incomes to also follow suit, and um, we're expecting a 41% drop in farm cash incomes for broadacre producers this year compared to some really high numbers that we've seen over the last couple of years. And I guess that is a point to make, that it is coming off uh, a couple of, of record and, and, and good years. So this takes uh, sort of things back to what as they were about three years ago? That's right. It takes us back a couple of years. And, and we did see last year in particular a peak, a, a historical peak really, in farm cash incomes and farm profits um, across the broadacre sector. Um, as we saw really, you know, particularly the cropping farms where we had both you know, high supply and very high international prices. Now, the the cause of those is a little bit unfortunate related to the war in Ukraine, um, but also because we've had drier conditions across many other grain-producing countries across the world. And so these represent a comeback um, from what we've seen, you know, as these, these good conditions. But I think the difference this time when we're seeing some drier conditions come at, particularly, you know, those ones prior to this good run of seasons, is that they're occurring at a time when international prices are not as high, um, whereas particularly for livestock, whereas last time we started entering into dry conditions and when it really ramped up, we had African swine fever going around in, in China and that led to really high protein prices, which helped that destocking and, and helped, I guess, farmers hold on to the income if they couldn't hold on to the, the stock. And you mentioned cropping there, and cropping is one area that is looking at a pretty significant cut in income in the coming year. Yeah, that's right. So for our cropping farms, when we, we look across the country, we're expecting about a 45% drop in their incomes, down from an average farm income of $1.1 million last year to about $627,000 this year. So that is quite a, quite a drop-off, but you know, from a very high starting point. 
And we contrast that to, you know, say, beef producers where we're expecting a smaller fall of 27%, but the, the numbers at the start and the, and the finish are also lower. So average farm cash income for beef producers has been around $180,000 and we're expecting that to fall to about $132,000. You did touch on some uh, locations around the country particularly that are going to feel this. Is it pretty much spread right across Australia? Now, there's a bit of regional variation across the country. Um, and so when we look at the profit maps that we've produced across different areas of the country, we see some some highlighted areas which are most affected. And they're not necessarily the same areas that are most affected by the drying conditions. Um, in areas in the northern cropping zone of WA, it's definitely the impact of the drying conditions which are leading to lower production and then lower farm incomes and profits. Same with we look to kind of north and New South Wales and into southern Queensland. We've got a similar dynamic at play there. But we're also expecting some fairly low farm cash incomes in the sheep grazing areas of, of South Australia and into Victoria, which haven't had the same, I guess, the same level of drying as yet as we've seen elsewhere in the country. So it's a bit of a mixed story. Um, but in other areas, in some areas, particularly as we go to central kind of north Queensland, there's, there are some positive highlights where you know we're expecting some good incomes flowing through to some producers. I think the report makes the point that while um, some of the major input costs have come back a bit or, or come down, that this is going to be offset by those falls in income? Yeah, that's right. We've got falling you know, prices or costs for a number of our inputs, so fertiliser and chemicals in particular, where now, they were really high in those tight supply and we, we had fertiliser prices go really high post the invasion of Ukraine. Similarly with fuel, but fuel prices have really stayed fairly high over the period. But while that is some relief, um, the forecast falls that we're seeing across those input bundle haven't been enough to kind of compensate for the income falls from, from the sale of products because it's drought affected or because the prices are lower. And it's also worth noting that some of those input costs have also gone up. And so as everyone with a mortgage knows, the interest costs have been steadily rising as the RBA has taken steps to try and get inflation under control. Of course, this is a, a forecast and anything can, can really happen. Um, you know, how on the money or accurate do they tend to be given, you know, commodity prices can be uh, fluctuate quite wildly, uh, weather's very unpredictable um, as a market. So, you know, how accurate can these forecasts tend to be? It's an excellent question. So this is actually our first time that we've looked to forecast farm cash incomes and it's really being brought about by some developments that we've been able to do with the CSIRO and Bureau met in terms of getting seasonal forecasts down to a fine scale and, and feeding that through. Um, so we're in a way we've looked at the historical record and in our and our ability to kind of predict and it's pretty high. So we're we're often around that ninety percent accurate looking at that. But as you say, each season is different and it varies and um our commodity and price forecasts are around the same kind of ninety percent accuracy we see at this time of year. Um, but, you know, I don't want to hedge and say that it's 100% accurate or close because really we're, we're our first toe in the water in this case um, and we're hoping that 
by doing this and providing this additional information, it will help people make decisions and we'll also be able to refine this as we go along and get more accurate within market. Dr Greenville, we really appreciate you making time for the country out today. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks again for having me on. Dr. Jared Greenville there, Executive Director of ABES, and you can go to their website if you want to have a bit of a further dig into that report he was talking about today. Well, as farm profits take an expected downturn, perhaps some timely news that the Rural Financial Counselling Service says this week had its funding extended. The program's delivered here in South Australia and the Northern Territory by Rural Business Support, and its acting CEO is Darren Keenan. Hi, Darren, and good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So some funding, good funding news uh, for rural business support. How long does this fund you for into the future? So this funds us through to 30 June 2026, so it's effectively a two-year extension, which is fantastic news. We're very grateful to the Minister for making that decision. And obviously good to have some certainty and security around into the future if you're working with uh, people for them to know that uh, that you will be there going forward? A- absolutely. It, what we do is we work with clients for up to three years Um, So having that three-year window still in front of us still gives us that opportunity. How long uh, has Rural Business Support been providing this service here in South Australia now? We've we've been in business since 2006 and we've had the Rural Financial Counselling Service in SA since then and also for NT since 2011. So in that time, what have you seen in terms of uh, the demand for, for your services and help across South Australia? Uh, there is a, there's a lot in that question. Uh, the demand peaks and, and troughs along with what is going on in, in the world and there can be lots of influences. It can be due to weather systems, it can be due to uh, drought, uh, we've seen bushfires, we've seen floods, uh, we've seen bio outbreaks and now we've got a red wine grape glut as well so, and then you can throw in export market uh, declining, Pricing for livestock going down, interest rates going up. There's a lot of factors that changes how the, the level of service requirement comes and goes. Yeah, and a lot of those factors you just mentioned are obviously taking a big bite at the moment. So in, in recent months, have you you seen a bit of an uptick in, in calls? Yes, absolutely. We're, we're definitely on an incline at the moment. Obviously, I mentioned red wine glut, so that's been keeping us busy in the Riverland along with the floods. Uh, sorry, when I say Riverland, it should be Riverland and all the other wine grape growing areas. The floods in the Riverland as well, but we're, we're aware of we've had a dry winter where there's a predicted hot summer, and that is obviously affecting forecasting, and we can see see what's going to happen there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess given that outlook about uh, dry times ahead and some people are already uh, seeing the impact of that and all of those other factors going on, uh, we've just spoken to ABEARS about their uh, forecasts for the coming financial year, looking at some significant declines in, in farm incomes, including here in South Australia. So are you preparing that this is something that is you are going to continue to see increasing demand? Yes, there's no doubt we'll see an increasing demand and it's it's interesting you bring up that ABARES report because that tells us what we already thought and it's reality now. So the report basically talks about farmers having less cash uh, flow coming through and that leads to financial hardship or at the moment people who can see that coming, it's imminent financial hardship and that's exactly who we deal with, people who are in that uh, space. So we would urge them to contact us 
sooner rather than later while we still have options on the table to work with them. Yeah, I think that's a really important message, isn't it, is to not leave it until things are more desperate or dire. The earlier that you can get some sort of planning and management in place so you can see something on the horizon coming uh, is going to make a big difference in how you meet that. From both sides, one is the number of options that are available, but also the stress on the farmer or producer is going to be a little bit lessened as well. Nobody likes to see it on the horizon, but talk to us earlier because when it does happen, everybody gets a little bit more stressed. It makes it harder to work through and uh, it's more challenging for everybody. So Darren, what kind of help do people receive if they contact the service and say, look, you know, um, things are looking pretty, pretty tough? Uh, what do you actually provide? So financial counselling is a process of working with the client or the farmer producer to help them to understand their options. So it's not us coming in and giving advice and telling them what to do. It's us working through with them, empowering them to see the options, uh, to just cast a, a friendly eye over the financials and, and then have discussions around So what, regarding like what does this mean for you, what do you see as the options to work through this, and to help them formulate a set of goals to how they might ride through whatever the next period looks like for them, and then to support them through it. Sometimes just having a chat to a friendly ear who is confidential is part of the process. And now we know that ear will be available for uh, a bit longer, and that is good to know. Darren, uh, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. Uh, thank you. Could I just leave our free call number, which is one eight hundred eight three six two double one? Like I said, we're free, we're independent, and we're confidential, and we welcome anybody to give us a call. Darren Keenan there, Acting CEO of Rural Business Support. You're with Selena Green. It's 18 minutes past 12. Well, where is the light at the end of the tunnel for sheep, lamb and cattle prices in Australia? And just what decisions should farmers be making? Angus Gidley-Baird is a Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank. He was in Panola this week attempting to answer some of these questions. He says it's important to understand how we got here to make good decisions going forward. So we looked at the current livestock markets, why we are where we are, both from a sheep, lamb and, uh, and beef point of view. And, and really the main story from an Australian point of view is increased numbers of livestock on the market, not only because of increased inventory levels, but also a degree of pessimism from a producer point of view and people sceptical about the seasons and offloading more livestock. Um, but also then the stocks in the system and the, the softer consumer demand. So nothing's pulling those volumes through the system and we've just got a, a bit of a glut of volume on the market at the moment and as a result, some fairly soft prices. And you said that pessimism really is having a big impact. Generally when you crunch the numbers you would expect with all of the factors at the moment that it would be a little bit better than it actually is but you think it's that pessimism that's holding things back a bit. Yeah, it is. I, I, I believe so. I mean, you, you model things based on historical relationships and it doesn't necessarily, you know, what happens today doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be exactly the same as the past, but um, the models are suggesting that, you know, given the current situation, the market is a bit underpriced. And just speaking to people, the volume of livestock we've got on the market at the moment, I think is partly because people have you know, made some earlier decisions and made some decisions to sell a few more than what they possibly would have been thinking. Plus, you know, concern about ongoing seasons and whether or not they want to buy any more. So I think that's possibly leading us to where we are. It does raise an interesting question, though, in terms of you know, as we progress and if it was to get drier across parts of the country, have those early decisions already mean that we've seen those livestock come out or, you know, and, and therefore is there less likelihood of further decline in prices as we move through? Yeah, if you were a farmer, what kind of decisions around that would you be making yourself? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, 
I'm looking at green grass around here at the moment, and I'm reckoning if I've got green grass and I can carry livestock, I'd be trying to hold on to them. I, yeah, you know, there is the potential that it goes dry across widespread areas of Australia. We might see further decline in prices, but I see also equally if it doesn't go dry, there are a lot of reasons why prices are possibly at the bottom at the moment. And if you can hold livestock, put weight on, and the possibility of a you know some price increase late this year, early next year you might be able to make some money out of that. And you have been travelling quite widely recently on a, you know, through New South Wales, Victoria, now here in Panola today and, and off to WA tomorrow. What differences in the regions have you been seeing, just not with what you physically see, but what you've been hearing from farmers as well? Yeah, a lot of different factors affecting people's sort of state of mind and mood at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, southern New South Wales, Victoria, and Victoria got a good dump of rain last week. You know, they're, they're reasonably, well, they're okay from a production point of view, but obviously looking at the markets and there's a degree of scepticism as to, you know, prices where they are, 40, 50, 60% lower than what they were last year. That always makes the decisions then not as good to sell. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got to make those calls. Western Australia is probably... Uh, got a slightly different influence on their sort of mood at the moment. There seems to be a lot more politically related uh, concerns over there, and uh, it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it's like later this week up in Broome from a you know live export point of view. There've been concerns um, that raised uh, a couple of months ago around lumpy skin disease and, and export volumes of cattle out of that market. So it'll be interesting to hear how how the producers are tracking up there. So you think South Australia is reasonably well-placed at the moment? Oh, I look around here at the moment and the green grass that you've got. Um, yeah, I think you're, 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 anywhere that's got green grass and can continue to, to run livestock I think is all right because um, if you're being forced into a position where you've got to sell when the market's like it is at the moment, it's never an easy decision. Um, but if you have the ability to hold livestock and potentially ride this one out, I think you, you're probably in a much fairer position. And a question you had here today, and you said it was a common question in your travels, is just how much the big supermarkets are leading prices at the moment. You said not to necessarily look to them to uh, be a quick fix or or the key to moving big volumes. Why is that? Yeah, I I mean, you just look at it from a consumer point of view and consumers' consumption of red meat has been pretty good. The numbers I've done in terms of per capita consumption suggest that our, our red meat consumption in the last two years has gone up despite the really high retail prices. So I wonder, you know, even with discounting or, or, or reductions in the in the retail space, whether or not we would see enough movement in volume to actually correct the prices that we've got at the moment. I think we, we need more of a supply-side impact on that production. So the decisions that are being made at the moment, the high numbers of livestock coming through the system, that'll correct it a bit. And hopefully those global markets pick up as well. We're still... You know, we still export 60 to 65% of our sheep, meat and, and beef. Those global markets have got a fire to, to draw product through the system as well. Yeah, and on that, you did spend a fair bit of today talking about America. What predictions, uh, observations have you gotten from their market recently? Yeah, I think the US is the, um, it's the bright light at the end of a slightly shorter tunnel for the beef industry. Uh, it's going to have left, less influence, if any, on, on the, the lamb and sheep market, but they're going to go through a contractionary phase. Uh, they've they've had massive cow slaughter over there as a result of drought conditions. Their production's already starting to decline. Their exports are declining. They're going to require more imports. It's going to have an influence on prices. It's going to lift 
global beef prices. That will start to pull Australian product into the US. It'll mean we have less competition in our other key markets, Japan, South Korea and China. It will have a positive influence on prices, meat prices, global meat prices, and as a result will we'll provide upside for Australian cattle prices. Probably my estimates at the moment, you know, mid next year, we'll, we'll, well, early next year, I think we'll start to see supply chains open up and volumes flow. Come middle of next year to late next year, we might be starting to see an influence of that US market. It's Rabobank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird, and he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. You're with Selena Green. It's 25 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. And Simon Timke is our senior forecaster today. Hi, Simon. G'day, Selena. Uh, is there much exciting on the weather front coming at us? No, look, fairly stable conditions uh, today, certainly under the influence of a, of a high-pressure ridge extending from a high centre to the southwest of Perth. It's a pretty slow-moving feature too. That high will dominate our weather for the next uh, next few days. It's uh, going to stay in that position uh, for today and tomorrow, then start to move eastwards on Sunday, eventually make its way over the eastern states uh, by Tuesday. So right through that time it'll be the dominant feature on our weather. Uh, keeping the south of the state in a southwesterly airstream, north of the state the southeasterly airstream uh, and just a, a couple of little embedded troughs in there uh, moving across over the weekend. So uh, for, for today we've had quite a bit of cloud over the south which has gradually decreased during the morning mostly dry conditions but there are a couple of light showers showing up on the radar uh, about southern coastal districts but not expecting any uh, any significant totals out of that further north plenty of clear skies across the pastoral districts uh, Flinders district and uh, and those more in, inland sort of areas but with that southwest to southeasterly airstream Temperatures on the, uh, I guess, on the mild side for for, for this time of year, uh, and those winds likely to be a little bit fresh at times near the uh, near the coast today. Over the weekend, with those uh, those couple of embedded troughs, I think we'll see a, a little bit of shower activity um, push a little bit further inland. For for Saturday, we're we're expecting isolated showers over the the southern agricultural area, uh, and those showers probably a little bit more frequent about southern coasts and ranges. Uh, could be a little bit of fog out west too early in the morning. Uh, and then uh, uh, temperature-wise, similar temperatures to those of today, maybe slightly higher, but but generally in the in the same ballpark. Um, with those uh, southwest to southeasterly winds persisting, and like today, uh, a, a bit fresh at times near the coast. On Sunday, those isolated showers pushing a little bit further inland again. A chance of seeing the odd shower about the northern agricultural area and near western coasts uh, and the showers a little bit more frequent about the southern agricultural area on Sunday. Temperatures again similar to to those of today, a little bit warmer in the north um, but remaining cool to mild in the south with uh, southwest to southeasterly winds again. Uh, and on Monday, those isolated showers likely to be pretty light about the agricultural area and uh, uh, clearing away during the morning, I think, so by afternoon. Uh, dry conditions right across the state on Monday afternoon. Uh, and temperatures slowly starting to rise, but we'll see those more significant temperature rises through the middle part of the week. Tuesday, plenty of sunshine around. Most districts will have a sunny day and dry. Uh, a bit of a cold start at first in parts of the south, maybe a little bit of patchy frost around the place, uh, but then uh, uh, the wind's starting to tend around a bit more northeasterly in the west of the state. We'll see some fresh afternoon sea breezes uh, near the coast. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all looking pretty dry. 
uh, and getting warmer uh, ahead of a change that we're expecting to see move across from the west um, late Thursday and Friday, which will bring uh, a southwest to southeasterly wind change over the west and the south. But at this point, not looking like too much in the way of showers at all through the middle and later part of next week. Uh, rainfall totals for that period out to the end of uh, Tuesday, generally less than two millimetres about the northern agricultural area and near western coasts. Uh, two to five millimetres about the southern agricultural area. We might see some local heavier falls of five to ten millimetres about the the Mount Lofty Ranges, Kangaroo Island and the southeast districts. But in general, Selena, not, not expecting too much in the way of rainfall over the next week or so. All right. Thanks for that, Simon, and happy Friday. Thanks, Selena. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales, for both the upper and lower western district, we're looking to sunny to mostly sunny conditions for tomorrow uh, with southerly winds around 20 k's an hour throughout the morning into the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures getting down to around 10 degrees. In the day, they'll reach up into the high 20s, up to 30 degrees. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're with Selena Green. And the International Day of Rural Women is coming up this weekend. You're going to meet some inspirational ones from our state in this next half an hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hey, good afternoon. Great to be with you on this Friday afternoon. Coming up, well, this Sunday is a very special day. October 15th is the International Day for Rural Women. You're going to meet some extraordinary ones from across our state in this coming half an hour, including one who's made a huge contribution to selling the story of South Australia's wine overseas. We're in a, a quite an extraordinary position because our reputation worldwide is gold, really. It doesn't really matter where you go in our state. There's really interesting things going on, you know. That's to come, and you'll learn about a network that's been set up here in South Australia called She Farmer. But first, Matt Coleman is here with news. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the federal government says it's aware of 19 Australians in Gaza seeking to leave as the war there continues. 220 Australians are set to leave Israel early tomorrow on a repatriation flight, but there are others across the border in Gaza also wishing to escape, including a family of four from Adelaide. The Prime Minister remains confident most South Australians will vote for a voice to Parliament in tomorrow's referendum, even though the opinion polls are suggesting otherwise. SA has been nominated as a winnable state by both sides of the campaign. Anthony Albanese is in Adelaide today as part of his final push to sway voters, while no campaigners are lobbying people who are voting early at pre-poll booths. And the state government will spend about $150 million on two new helicopters for the state's police and ambulance services. The aircraft for the state rescue helicopter service are expected to begin operating before the end of next year. Four new pilots will also be hired so that three helicopters can be airborne at once if they're required. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, women make up about half of Australia's agricultural industry, but they're underrepresented on boards and in decision-making roles. Ahead of International Day of Rural Women this Sunday, Megan Hughes has spoken to some of the industry's female leaders about what needs to change. 
Currently, women make up a quarter of membership on the boards of agricultural product companies listed on Australia's stock exchange. So why is it actually important to have female leaders in the ag industry? just brings a variety of thinking and that is going to absolutely increase the options that are available to to industry. We're wanting to take and elevate ag in Australia right across the global supply chain. We need to represent ag and ag is 50% women. I think when you have a large cohort of females then some of the younger women can look up to them and see the kinds of roles they're doing and aspire to do that as well. Over 50% of our population is female so it's crazy not to make sure we've got lots of great women in agriculture who are also leading. Otherwise we miss out on the fabulous strategic thinking and practical knowledge that those women have. There's mutual agreement it needs to happen, but how do you do it? Fiona Simpson from the National Farmers Federation was the first female president of the organisation. The NFF runs a diversity and leadership program. They've got more than 50 alumni since it started and boast more than 30 organisations who've partnered with them, committing to make meaningful change towards gender diversity in the ag industry. What we need to do is focus on the gaps, whether it's it's gender pay gaps, whether it's flexible work options, whether it's working from home options, uh, whatever it is, those are the sorts of issues that our partners in our diversity and ag leadership program are actually committing to fix. Peter Ward is the national manager of Westpac's regional and agribusiness team. She says young women need to be supported in their journey to leadership. It's not always easy to stand up and want to be a leader, but if we all lean in and give them the scaffolding and support, then we will have more leaders in ag. For CEO of Egg Farmers of Australia, Melinda Hashimoto, it comes down to one thing. I'm a big advocate for mentoring and I think that women can certainly mentor other women. Um, They can have two-way mentoring to learn from one another. And for Georgie Somerset, who heads up AgForce as their general president, as well as supporting young women, she wants to go a step further. I think it's important we actually identify leaders, both men and women, but particularly women, and really encourage them to take that step forward into leadership and then be there for them. So be a scaffolding and be a support as they find their feet as our leaders of the future. For these women who've worked hard to secure themselves into a leadership role, what actually makes a good leader? It's definitely about being driven by what you do, about it being your your ethos, about it being your being, about being very passionate about it and believing in it. And that that then, I think, shines through in everything you do. Someone that's really authentic. So you need to bring your whole self to work every single day and people really respect leaders that are authentic. Someone that shows passion and resilience. And if they have that kind of attitude towards what they're doing and showing their passion, then certainly the people that they work with will also um, foster that. It will rub off on them as well. I think a good leader is someone who can take people on the journey with them, who can see over the horizon the challenges and the opportunities, but then take the team along with them with full support. That's Ag Force President Georgie Somerset finishing that story from Megan Hughes. Well, do you know a rural woman who goes above and beyond for her community? I bet you could name a few. International Day of Rural Women, as I said, is coming up. A good day as any to let her know how valued she is. Rachel Titley is a fourth-generation Merino sheep farmer from Sherlock in South Australia's Mallee. She's worn many hats over the years. She's been a regional police officer, a child protection worker, but now she's created She Farmer, a network to support rural women in business. And she told Eliza Berlage how her upbringing shaped her community work. I'd always been a contributor and grew up that way in the community that I grew up in. We all had to sort of take turns cleaning the church and cleaning the public toilets at the little town and providing 
afternoon tea at tennis. So there was always that contribution that was part of community and the places and spaces that were belonging. And as time went by, I found that those parts of me were a very entrenched part of identity that I could then build on in community in other sort of vulnerable scenes and settings. And at the end of the day, we're all after kindness, we're all after belonging and we're all after care. And I think my upbringing and exposure to such strong places of belonging then enabled me to really be and do some things within community, whether it was in paid work as police officer and working in child protection and a series of other government and NGO roles or the spaces that I chose to contribute in a volunteer capacity, which included special events and days that we celebrate in culture and also places and spaces that included the prison and creating a children's choir and being Mm. a foster carer. So that's sort of been a bit of a a constant, I suppose, through the past 25 years has been championing and empowering people and just this love of regions, rural community, agriculture. You've won an award for being a rural community leader and you have now been working on your She Farmer platform and these sisterhood gatherings in Adelaide. Tell me a bit more about these initiatives that you run and how you've drawn on your experience and your background to lift other people up. I think it's just that awareness that as I look back on my my journey and some of the incredible positioning and opportunities that I've had, there were always people there to create a space for me or to provide me with some guidance or information about the next steps or advice. And I think that there becomes an obligation and great leadership is also when you do that for others and you recognise that there's a, a duty and reciprocity with paying it forward and paying it back. So I, I re- registered the business name She Farmer 12 years ago with the knowledge that at some stage I would create community and a a mechanism vessel in some way that would be a place where others could have acceptance and belonging and softness and safety, but also education, empowerment, resources and equipping to run their lane if they felt quite isolated and unconventional and the noise for them was perhaps louder and created more barriers and delays than what it did for me. So the She Farmer platform and the sisterhood gatherings, how do they work and what sort of support have they and do they provide for rural women? What I've become really aware of is that there are a series of pain points for rural women in business that are specific for rural women in business that include access to financial acumen and resourcing and education, literally access to money, as well as information about starting or scaling and then the pillars that are needed to be in place for there to be sustainability and longevity and for you to build on. So my niche is leadership and wellbeing. So I speak a lot to those things. I speak a lot to how to lead yourself well. And we do a once a month for a week, we do a challenge that I've called the She Farmer 7-Day Challenge, where we take lots of little steps towards growing and developing and nurturing our personal and professional life. So the professional is books and podcasts and YouTubes and articles and coaching and workshops. And, And then the personal is really putting a spotlight on well-being, which is our health, happiness and relationships. And just that reminder, because of the physical isolation, often when you're running business in a rural setting, that 
we have to be intentional about nurturing relationships and it's often just as quick and easy as picking up the phone or scheduling a coffee or time to catch up when you're going to be close by, but also popping in some things a couple of times a year to really nurture your soul and nurture your health and happiness and relationships. So yeah, I am that voice that does talk about, have you seen a GP? Are you seeing a therapist? You know, how are you going? How are you connected? Where are you connected? How are your relationships? What can you do to strengthen those areas? What can you do to get support in those areas? And also that voice of encouragement to continue to run forward to the big goals as well. And that we get, we build the big little by little. And so what do you hope for next? I know you're holding some events this weekend and you're gathering lots of people together, but what are some of your next hopes and steps for the platform and the, the, the networks that you run? Yeah, so like you've mentioned, we've got the International Day of Rural Women Adelaide on Saturday, which is very exciting. I stood around with some other girls who were in OZAG in executive roles last year and South Australia didn't have a single event to celebrate International Day of Rural Women. So I did a lot of whinging. They did a little bit of whinging. I did a lot more whinging. And then I thought, you know what? I can create this. I can build a team. I can bring people in and let's celebrate. Let's also have some conversations, some hard conversations. Let's get some great speakers in to educate and empower and equip. And let's journey together. Let's once a year have a conference where we do that. We connect as a, as a sisterhood, as a big sisterhood where we have some keynote speakers that speak to these pain points that all rural women in business encounter. And let's have some fun and eat some great food and drink some nice coffee. Um, that all sounds like a lot of fun and a great way to spend a day. That is She Farmer founder Rachel Titley and she was speaking there to Eliza Berlage. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green. Well, while we're on this theme, let's go to a woman who's made a significant contribution to selling the story of South Australian wine to the world. So much so, she was recently bestowed the title Legend of the Vine at the Royal Adelaide Wine and Spirit Show Trophy Winners Lunch. Jane Ferrari's career spans many years in the wine and communications, including 25 years at Yalumba Wines, as well as time spent at both Wolf Blass and Rockford Wines. I spoke with Jane and I asked her what it was like to be recognised in this way by her peers. Very unexpected, uh, out of the blue, and um, a little bit overwhelming because uh, the other folks, some um, people like Bill Hardy and um, Brian Walsh and uh, Brian Crozer, Pam Dunsford, they're, they're all pretty big names in our industry. So it was uh, completely unexpected, out of the blue, and um, but I have to be honest, I'm thrilled to this. Great to hear. Jay, take us back. How did you and when did you first become involved in the wine industry? Well, by accident, really, because I wanted, always wanted to be um, a vet in the horse racing industry, but didn't get the grades at matriculation. So I did the best agricultural degree I could get into at Roseworthy, which was winemaking, and um, went straight from high school. So I was like 17, so technically ineligible for the century evaluation classes. But I sort of fell in with a, a fantastic class, and I guess you don't realise until way, way down the track that I really got lucky because I landed with, um, I think it was about 18 lads and two girls and um, the other lads had you know, had been working for Villa Maria in, in New Zealand forever, Rosie Butler. But I ended up in a class with guys like Mike Brykovich from Kumia River and Peter Barry from um, Jim Barry Wines and Chris Ringland who literally was the apprentice with Rob O'Callaghan that, that you know, did great things 
down on Crondorf Road and Martin Shaw from Shaw and Smith and Nick Walker from O'Leary Walker, Rolfie Binder from their winery. So I was in this class of tremendous folks that you don't realise till way down the track, you know, pillars of the industry. And, you know, at the time, I, I just kind of got into it and, and realised that um, it was a tremendous industry, although... At the time, you know, when I did my first vintage, you had, you had to do a vintage to get your degree in your final year, and it was the vine pool years. So we were in a very tough time as an industry. Mm. Yeah, and it was weird because I couldn't get a vintage for, for love nor money, and um, I just didn't realise at the time that girls didn't work in the cellar, uh, and there weren't any female winemakers apart from the odd one that owned their own winery. So I got lucky again, and my distillation teacher, Bob Baker, spoke to young graduate from Roseworthy College, Johnny Glazer, who was working for Wolf Glass, and they had, like, all of 14 employees at the time. And um, he said, would you just give this girl a job so she can get a degree? And they were getting um, all their fruit crushed initially, red wines at Masterson at the time with Peter Lehman and at um, Bazardo's uh, with Doug Lehman. So there was road tankers coming and going. So Johnny said, well, you can just unload road tankers, and that, and that lasted for two weeks, and then I got a job, job in the cellar. So... It kind of went from there, and I was I was lucky with the Barossa. They they adopted me, and yeah, here I am. Here you are. Amongst your roles over a long career, um, you lumber for a couple of decades as a, a storyteller. Mm-hmm. What did that mm-hmm. role involve? Well, that was a lucky one too, you know, because I I was looking after cellar door and events, and and doing a lot of work with um, incoming distributors from interstate and overseas, and. Rob Hill-Smith, who was the managing director at the time, decided that he was going to take a, a concept that he'd read about from Robert Mondavi where they foresaw the way that the world of wine was going to be sort of corporatised, amalgamation and consolidation. And, and there was a kind of a theory of how family-owned wineries could compete. And it was to build your technical people or take a technical person from your, your winery that was that could hold a conversation and and turn them into a, an ambassador of sorts that could go out um, on a regular basis and, and build a circuit of sorts with the press, the trade and consumers, but that was direct from the winery. And then the winery could have, you know, at least a little bit of control of their own destiny. So he thought this was an excellent idea and he put it into practice and he, he said to me, he said, well, I'm going to send you. And I was quite a little bit overwhelmed because I didn't really see myself as a PR person, but out we went into the arena and it was a very steep learning curve. We were fortunate in Australia and New Zealand that the, the family distributed themselves along with other wineries, so you had the network that you, that you knew well. But once you get outside of Australia, you put your wine into someone else's hands as, as a distributor and your lumber was distributed at the time in 33 states of America. So you had to make friends with 33 different distributors mm. and convince them that you were worthwhile working with so that you could get access to the market, so that you could help sell the wine, place the wine, and it was a really steep learning curve because I was from production. I wasn't from marketing, and um, it works really differently all around the world, and, and uh, it was a great opportunity. And here you are, instead of working in Adelaide and Sydney and Melbourne, which you knew well, you're working in New York and in Los Angeles and... Um, and Vancouver, and that was extraordinary. So over the yeah. years, Jane, how, how have you seen the story of South Australian wine evolve and the response to that, particularly internationally? I think it's been really interesting because 
when I was a youngster in the industry and I was doing my first vintage, there were these three-dimensional giants in the Barossa, like Peter Lehman and, and Bob McLean, who was at Orlando, and then St. Hallett's and um, Wolfie Blass. There were these grand old statesmen like John Dickery and, and um, Phil Laffer, and they were such characters, and they were making great inroads in England at the time. Hadn't really tapped into America, but starting... And so I was able to see these great characters at work. Uh, Maggie Beer had the pheasant farm and there was the huge Friday long table lunches where, you know, they solved the problems of the wine industry worldwide. And, and, and it was just quite an extraordinary thing to be on the edge of. And like I said, it was the vine pool time when, you know, there were massive, there were huge piles of vines being pulled out around the brosser and, and just being set alight, you know, and... Um, Yes, we lost some cherry varieties that we didn't need, but we also lost a lot of great Shiraz and Grenache as well. So, you know, then it was kind of like we saw the consolidation of Shiraz in the Barossa and become synonymous with the Barossa worldwide, and the quality across the board just lifted and lifted and lifted and lifted, and more winemakers came out of Roseworthy and, and did apprenticeships in the industry, and then... Charles Sturt started, which was very practically based, and Waite was doing great things. And I think in a relatively short period of time, we got to a stage where the winemakers, the viticulturalists, and the wine researchers in Australia had done such a good job that we were in a position where good wine was everywhere and great wine was common, you know. And the consumers knew it too. I mean, it's been a golden age for Australian consumers, I think, and and I think we've now come around full circle where we're in a position at the moment where we've got this huge amount of volume of really good wine and a lot of great wine, and some of the markets aren't as easily accessed as they were before, and there's a huge amount more of competition. Yeah, because South America, South Africa, uh, and everyone in Europe wants all the market share that everyone else has got, so it's a lot more competitive. And also there's been a huge amount of planting down in Tasmania that's making a massive difference to our industry. But in South Australia, you know, I think we're in a, a quite an extraordinary position because our reputation worldwide is gold, really. Shiraz is synonymous with the Barossa. Riesling between Eden Valley and um, Clare has consolidated. Grenache has been a sleeper for a long, long time and has now arrived. We've got this extraordinary viticultural treasure trove of ancient vines in the Barossa and, and, and McLaren Vale that are pushing out Grenaches that are, you know, challenging anything from anywhere. We always like to say in the Barossa that, you know, Grenache delivers what Pinot Noir promises and um, the rest of the world's found it, you know. It's not just that. You've got, you know, you've got what Ashley Ratcliffe is doing up in the Riverland with Ricotera, like with all those weird and wonderful varieties. He's got a variety up there from Portugal, I think, that he adds, as a, instead of adding acid, he adds this variety because it's a really zippy variety. So he's doing that. And, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter where you go in our state. There's really interesting things going on, you know. Absolutely. Let alone the Adelaide, let alone the Adelaide Hills. You know, there's sparkling wine coming out of Deviation Road up there that's making people really take a good hard look at what's possible. You can tell she loves South Australian wine. That is Jane Ferrari, the ninth person to be awarded Legend of the Vine status here in South Australia. She was also inducted as a Baron of the Barossa back in 2013. Jane's got such a great story to tell. There's a reason she was given a job as a storyteller. I ended up having actually a very lengthy chat with her, which I couldn't fit all on today's show. So if you'd like to hear it all, including how she ended up with the nickname Frau Ferrari Schnitter, 
and the time she met Hugh Grant while spruiking wine overseas. I will pop that full interview up on the South Australian Country Hour website a little later today, so keep an eye out for that. Just uh, pop a South Australian Country Hour into your search engine. It is just going on eight minutes to one. Well, the state's top young livestock judges and handlers will be in Launceston this weekend for the Agricultural Shows of Australia national competitions. Among them is Lydia Sanders from Keith in the southeast. She's representing the state in the Beef Cattle Paraders competition. Parading cattle before a judge is the final step in showing an animal, as Lydia explained to Karen Hunt. Basically, you generally have about 10 animals in a class and you as the parader, it's your job to um, make sure that your animal is paraded and looking at its best the whole time. So generally in a parading competition, every judge will run the ring differently. But generally you walk a couple laps around the ring, stand your animal up, maybe walk off individually from the rest of the class and the judge basically assesses how you work with your animal and how you present the animal to the judge. Why did you want to do something like that? What's got you into this particular field? So growing up, my parents had stud cattle and we used to show them. And so basically parading them is your way of presenting your animals to the judge. And really it's the final step in showing your animal. Like you work ages breeding the animal, feeding up the animal ready for the show and feeding the animal and then parading is the final step. So I suppose it's something that I've always strived to try and get better at myself to sort of, yeah, get that final step. How have you been preparing for this? Basically, um, I've been going around to a few shows over the year and just been practising in other handler competitions and also showing the cattle through the ring um, when they are being shown and I suppose leading, handling different animals because over there you pick an animal out of a hat so you don't know what you're going to be parading until an hour before the class. So yeah, basically just practicing handling different animals and um, adapting to how different how you can handle different animals. How do you feel about representing the state? Are you nervous? I'm a little bit nervous but I'm excited. should be good to see sort of who else is there from other states and yeah I'm looking forward to it. Lydia Sanders there from Keith and she was speaking to Karen Hunt. As we've mentioned this week there are several South Australians over in Launceston uh, competing in a number of different competitions at that event. We must give a congratulations to South Australian contestant Cody Jones who listeners may remember we spoke to a bit earlier in the month and he placed runner-up in the National Meat Breeds Sheep Young Judges Championship yesterday. Or finally today, have you ever met a cowgirl, a real cowgirl? How about 700 of them? Well, that's how many women from across Australia camped out at the third annual Cowgirls Gathering to have fun, learn in a supportive environment and focus on their health and well-being. It's one weekend every year that gets hundreds of rural women cracking, blocking out their calendars and camping out in Kilkeven, an hour and a half's drive northwest of the Sunshine Coast, for an equestrian event unlike any other. <laughs> Amanda Loy founded the event three years ago and it's been growing organically, with more than 700 women taking part this year. It's just a beautiful thing to see them taking some time out for themselves and filling up their own cup. So that's something that I get a lot of reward. 
How important is mental health and self-care as part of this? Yeah, I think it's something we don't talk about enough. I think it's something that women don't often do naturally as carers and caregivers. So I think it's incredibly important for them to take some time out and have a bit of, you know, bit of them time. And there's a common theme through the whole entire weekend. Obviously the horse connects us, but it's really about women supporting women. The gathering welcomes riders from all and any disciplines, including dress Sarge, polar cross, camp drafting, stockman's challenge, cutting and trail riding. But not everyone came with a horse or even owned one. As well as equine competitions and clinics, there were ice baths and classes in breath work, whip cracking, roping, drawing, leather work and jewellery making. So I think it's about supporting each other and keeping it really safe, encouraging each other. But exactly what is an Aussie cowgirl? We put the question out to the crowd. Uh, I would say that a cowgirl is someone who's tough, resilient, brave, outgoing. So I'd like to say that it is someone who horse rides. Determination, drive, passion, because you wouldn't be in horses and you wouldn't do the work that you do on the the stations and stuff without passion for what you're doing. Guts. Um, Guts and determination and grit. It's about looking after others and being gutsy in your community. I think uh, connected to nature and animals, and I think the intuition that women have as a cowgirl, you connect to the horses. Um, mostly everything. Look after your ponies and give your ponies a lot of love and give your pony a lot of treats. Yeah! <laughs> As a very young cowgirl, ending that story from Jennifer Nichols from the annual Cowgirls Gathering. 700 cowgirls, sounds like they had a great time. Uh, now, just enough time for me to tell you that applications are still open for the 2024 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. It's Australia's leading award, empowering and celebrating the inclusive and courageous leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses and communities. Each state and territory winner will get $15,000 in a grant for their project, business or program, as well as access to professional development opportunities and alumni networks. State and territory winners also get a learning and development bursary of up to $11,000. If you are named South Australia's winner, you'll go on to represent the state in the national awards in Canberra. Uh, So applications are open, but they close on Wednesday, the 25th of October at 5pm Australian Eastern time, so 4.30 here in South Australia. If you want more information, if you'd like to nominate yourself or someone, uh, apply by going to the AgriFutures website or just pop AgriFutures into your search engine, but you need to have done that application by the end of business on the 25th of October. It is two minutes away from the one o'clock news. Jason Chong's bringing you afternoons today. Hi, Jason. Hi, for the last time before um, Sonia comes back oh, on Monday. Make the most of it. Play all the songs that you like. Do I all know. the things. I've got, a, I've got a special thing for songs. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later in the show. It's a surprise. Um, but on today's show, uh, the Handoff Band Festival is happening uh, on Saturday. One of the many things happening on Saturday. It might be a nice place to go just to chill out a little bit. So we're going to talk to one of the organisers there. Um, uh, we're going to be talking bugs. Usually we do that earlier in the week, but uh, Chris couldn't make it. So uh, Chris Messenger is going to answer all of your bug and slug questions. Mm. So you can text them through. And we're going to be talking uh, birthday gifts. Do you, This is a bit of a question without notice, but what's, what's the best birthday gift you've ever had? Oh, oh. 
I know. Oh, no, my husband's going to kill me because he's really good at gifts and he puts a lot of thought into them. And you know what? I've drawn a blank. <laughs> oh, I'm going cr- to cop it when I get home. All right. Well, maybe oh. you can text in as well. Uh, I want to hear about your best uh, gifts you've ever uh, received. But also I want to know the best ones you've ever given. Ah. The ones you're really pr- – if you knocked out of the park. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those people who puts a lot of thought in and then it's, you know – Oh, this is nice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you think you've knocked it out of the park and no. Ungrateful so-and-so. Yeah. Well, I'll text him when I remember all the wonderful <laughs> things my husband's bought me. Have a great show, Jason. Thanks, Selena. Jason Chong there on Afternoons. This has been Selena Green. I'll catch you on Monday for more Country Hour. It's news time, one o'clock. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.